Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for our last midweek roundup for 2021. It's Wednesday, December 29th, and here are three questions we're going to be answering today. First up, why does China want Western knowledge, and how much are they willing to pay for it? Second, how deep is the conflict between Chinese students within the United States? And third, what are U.S. colleges planning for the spring term due to Omicron? We'll take a look at these three questions and more today on the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. First topic, why does China want Western knowledge? Now, this is an interesting uh, debate that goes back uh, many years, uh, certainly not a new topic, but uh, it's been highlighted over the last few weeks as a result of the recent conviction of uh, a Harvard University professor, former chair of their uh, chemistry and chemical biology department, uh, Charles Lieber, uh, was convicted on all counts uh, two weeks ago, or yeah, two weeks ago now. Uh, he had pled guilty, not guilty, to two counts of filing false tax returns, two counts of making false statements, and two counts of failing to file reports for a foreign bank account from, in China. So it was a short deliberation, less than three hours, so jury found him guilty on all counts. So what I will point out, this is not a story about, his, his particular conviction is not a story about illegal property transfer, intellectual property theft, any of that. This is really this guy being uh, a greedy uh, capitalist pig, perhaps, and uh, not uh, filing his taxes uh, and uh, making false statements about the relationship that he had with uh, China, in particular with China's Thousand Talents program. And that might be more commonly known, or uh, the commonly known uh, entity or organization that really targeted, uh, sponsored by the, uh, by the Chinese government, China Communist Party, uh, and that it was designed to recruit people with knowledge of foreign technology and intellectual property in China uh, to protect uh, and uh, to enhance, basically, uh, the reputation of Chinese universities and the country as a whole. So that was the goal, uh, has been the goal of the, China, of the Thousand Talents program. They would hire uh, Western faculty uh, and leaders in industry uh, for uh, these projects, basically. In this case, um, this uh, professor, uh, uh, Dr. Lieber, uh, was uh, hired by Wuhan University of Technology. And uh, you'll hear uh, in, in, in a minute or so just how much uh, he was paid, and one of the reasons why he didn't probably want to file his taxes because he made a ton of money as a result. He was being paid by Wuhan University of Technology $50,000 a month. He was also paid up to $158,000 in living expenses. He was given more than $1.5 million in grants, according to prosecutors. Now, this was payment, according to uh, the prosecutors, uh, that Lieber agreed to uh, publish articles, organize international conferences, and apply for patents on behalf of this Chinese university, Wuhan University of Technology. So it is the probably the highest profile case that's been part of the U.S. government's China initiative, started under uh, the Trump administration in 2018 and is still being carried, carried through uh, prosecutions mainly uh, uh, with the Biden administration, certainly not getting nearly the press it did as it did under, under Trump, but that's, that's the mainstream media. Uh, but that's, uh, this case in particular uh, really points to 
to the impact or the lengths to which this institution went to enhance its own reputation by hiring this uh, uh, prominent professor from a well, uh, one of the top universities in the country to basically help that institution raise its profile uh, in, in, world, in uh, world circles, in academia, in, uh, in, in terms of the patents that its professors were to apply, f uh, apply for. Again, this case is not about intellectual property theft and, and uh, uh, that kind of uh, debate that impacted, uh, is, is, is tied to Confucius Institutes and other, other articles that we'll get to. But uh, what we see is this is an example, and probably the most above-board example. There are the Thousands of Talents program has been around for a while, and uh, many universities have had faculty that have been a part of this. Hopefully, they have all reported their income because it's considerable, and we'll probably have significant taxes to pay on that. Uh, and certainly, this guy will have a lot of penalties to pay as well as a result. He concealed his income from uh, this Chinese program, uh, and that's why he's convicted. So it wasn't really a political question. It was a question of uh, tax evasion, really, more than anything else, and lying, lying, on, lying to officials. So this is one layer of that, why does China want Western knowledge? Because it doesn't have it itself. Uh, it's trying to develop it, and will do whatever it takes to get it. Some, some ways, this is a, a legit, what most people would consider a legitimate way of paying basically well above rate to secure the expertise needed to get that knowledge uh, and to get that, that, uh, pr their profile raised as an institution and as a country as a whole through all of these uh, Thousand Talents efforts. So this is, that's one part of this Chinese desire for Western knowledge because it enhances their abilities. They're, they've been playing catch up. Uh, as as a, they, they were largely an agricultural nation until uh, the Chinese takeover in uh, 49, uh, the Communist Party take or Communist takeover of, of China in 1949, uh, and that has led to uh, certainly in most recent years with the Belt and Road Initiative over the last 15 years a rapid increase in China's presence on the world stage and in politics uh, and governments and infrastructure and education conversations around the world through its Belt and Road Initiative, through the Thousand Talents Program, through their Confucius Institutes, and all of these other things. These are all attempts not only to have parts of their government entity uh, through these other programs in place in certain countries to gain that knowledge, uh, but also it's a reverse, uh, also a way to ex to paint the picture of what uh, the China, Chinese country, Chinese people are about uh, through the Confucius Institute and focus on language and other uh, issues and paint a picture that is more benevolent of how the country treats its people than what perhaps we think of it of China uh, and the openness we regard uh, China with reg related to uh, Uyghur Muslims, uh, to Tiananmen Square uh, being erased from their history books uh, and other things, uh, human rights uh, violations that we would consider in the West. Those don't factor into, or aren't admitted in any way, way shape, or form uh, by Chinese government officials. So uh, the, the gain, attempts to gain knowledge are, are certainly uh, ever present. Uh, and they are trying to play catch up uh, with technology. And in some areas, they're, they're ahead now as a result of uh, what they've been able to do over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, in other areas, uh, they're, they're still playing catch up and uh, they're, they've 
they have put measures in place to help uh, get them over the line and ahead of their competition. And it is a race to them. Uh, and But they are wise enough where they are planning years in advance, uh, 10, 15, 20 years of advance, and committing the resources necessary to help the country get over the line in the other areas that they're attempting to grow in. So what, as you see, reflected uh, beyond just this case here with Thousand Talents, uh, the, the other programs we've talked about, uh, Confucius Institutes and uh, their civil military fusion uh, strategy, military civil fusion strategy uh, that has come to light with uh, visa policy in, in the United States. The two uh, other reports I want to mention, one by the Hoover Foundation, Hoover Institute, uh, Hoover Institution, I should say, uh, and this uh, is a new report uh, that builds on several that they've uh, done over the years called Eyes Wide Open, Ethical Risks in Research Collaboration with China. And it basically points out a lot of, uh, what, a lot of what's been in the press lately about uh, technology theft and intellectual property theft and uh, uh, these kinds of things that uh, we, 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 we see in the news. We've seen court cases. A lot of professors have gotten arrested, Chinese researchers, Chinese-American uh, faculty that have gotten tie, that have, have these ties to some organizations in China that are, um, are suspect in, in U.S. terms, uh, one of which is the China, Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of Automation. Uh, this is a global uh, leader in education and research on artificial intelligence, biometrics, and neuroscience, uh, this organization in China, but it also works closely with the Chinese Communist Party's public security organ on the development of mass surveillance technologies. And that has, those technologies have been associated with human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims in Shenzhen. So uh, it details, the report details that uh, and some of the, some of the other concerns uh, make some very uh, specific recommendations related to this CASIA group. Uh, in terms of how the U.S. Uh, should respond, how institutions and organizations should respond to uh, these kinds of requests uh, about and how institutions should conduct themselves in relation to organizations like this uh, that it may enter into agreements with or not. So there's some, uh, and I hope it, the recommendations are to develop and uphold ethical standards and protect human rights. Uh, these are the things that... Um, this institution, Hoover Institution's report, certainly indicates U.S. as a government and institutions and organizations, including universities, should make a part of their decision-making process about who they interact with and what standards they set. Uh, I know I'm working with one institution right now that's internationalizing for the first time, and we've been having the conversation for several weeks about what do we need to do to properly vet our future clients, our future partners that we work with overseas. We've talked about what that looks like if you're vetting for uh, when it comes to national security and terrorism. There's State Department has a list. So if any signatories of uh, of a partner, uh, partner organization, university agent are connected with um, organization and that's on a State Department watch list for terrorists, that's obviously not a group that you want to engage in a formal relationship with because that's a potential threat to national security. And now this, or, this organization, uh, Hoover Institution, in its report is saying that 
the federal agencies should deny or remove funding for research projects that involve collaboration with these dodgy, in, in, in our terms, dodgy institutes or dodgy uh, standards on, in human rights and that type of thing. So we'll, we'll see if, the, if this, these recommendations get up, taken up. Uh, these are um, just some things that uh, will, can impact uh, if an institution is thinking about this holistically in terms of how do we set standards for who we involve, uh, get our involved with as an institution uh, outside the United States. So certainly a good, good report if you're looking for that kind of information. Another report, a much more detailed one from the Foundation for in Defense of Democracies, uh, FDD, uh, it's, it's entitled, The Middle Kingdom Meets Higher Education, How U.S. Universities Support China's Military-Industrial Complex. Now, when I think of military-industrial complex, I was a history-poli-sci major in college. I think of uh, the fifth, 1950s and Dwight Eisenhower and uh, post-World War II uh, developing a Cold War mentality and how important the military was in terms of uh, defending the country, but also uh, serving as a buffer uh, to, to communist ideology and that type of thing that was threatening uh, to upend who we were as a country. So in, in U.S. terms, we kind of get what that looks like. But uh, for China, uh, the military-industrial complex, and this is where we, we get into the um, military-civil fusion strategy that uh, re received prominence in the last couple of years of the Trump administration, where uh, institutions in China, that uh, universities in China were on a list that the government, U.S. government maintained. No one really ever saw what that list was, but those were institutions that were connected with this military-civil fusion that were particularly designated to obtain technology and intellectual property uh, through any means necessary. So that uh, that's that's a uh, highlight of this FDD report uh, that uh, talks about what uh, what what the nature of uh, of these organizations are and what that looks like in terms of uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, they highlight in particular the Confucius Institutes. Uh, for those that uh, aren't aware, there. Uh, at one point, there were 118, 113 uh, Confucius Institutes in 2018. Uh, as of 2021, at the 20, end of 2021, only 34 of those remain open. So they've two-thirds uh, have closed in the last uh, three years. It talks about the, why those organizations, why the Confucius Institutes became problematic, uh, because they uh, the institutions really didn't have uh, enough exert enough control over the content of those programs that were meant to be Chinese culture and language promotion, but ended up being kind of means to ends to uh, basically uh, support the Chinese uh, government's uh, attempts to obtain technology. So th those are a lot, lot of, uh, lot of uh, negatives associated with that. But uh, it really, it goes through all of the different programs, all of the different universities that had uh, had these Confucius Institutes and why they changed. Uh, it talks about the specific Chinese universities that are part of this uh, military-civil fusion strategy, uh, gives some examples of what that looks like. Uh, so really interesting uh, ways to, um, to talk about how universities have uh, conducted themselves, Chinese universities in partnerships with these Confucius Institutes to extend their influence. So uh, 
if you have, it's a very detailed report, huge report. So uh, one that perhaps you want to have on hand if you're looking, uh, if your institution is looking to uh, at Chinese university partnerships and what that might look like, um, and perhaps some not ones to avoid, but certainly th questions you need to be asking yourself as institutions that uh, before you uh, go too far down the lane with any any particular institutional partner. Okay, that's enough on that first question, a topic obviously that we will come back to many times, I'm sure, in the years to come, uh, but one that certainly deserved its attention because of the, the very uh, three very uh, different kind of uh, stories we just alluded to. But the second is a second question of the day is related in, and it's a U.S.-China focused issue, and it, it asks how deep is the conflict between Chinese students in the United States. Now, we all know that and have had experiences working with Chinese students over the years uh, on our campuses that there are going to be some students that really embrace the American way of life, that uh, maybe some that's uh, become um, actually fairly anti-China in terms of Chinese Communist Party uh, ideology, in terms of what's allowed to talk about. Uh, they become very... Uh, vocal about that, and this, there's a case that we'll talk about that happened with, uh, with students at, Chinese students at Purdue. I will mention that in a minute. But you also, you also have students who uh, come over from, uh, from uh, China uh, as undergraduates, and maybe uh, they're on joint degree programs, and they, uh, they come to campuses that have host family programs and get very ingrained in American culture. And really, real, their eyes get wide open, uh, or eyes become opened to uh, perhaps some things about their home country that they didn't know about because they were never taught about them. And certainly there are things like uh, what's happening with Uyghur Muslims in uh, Shenzhen province, what is what happened with Tiananmen Square that aren't even mentioned uh, in uh, Chinese history, history textbooks. Uh, so there are uh, those students that become Christians uh, that come as Chinese, uh, where it's really not, uh, it's not, not encouraged. Uh, there, there are 140 million Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, Christians back in China right now, but that's not always um, even allowed that most churches are all underground there. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a reality uh, that some students see when they come. Others that are become leaders of the, maybe the Chinese Student Association on campus tend to be more uh, ones that are towing the party line, so to speak, and in terms of what they'll talk about, what they'll what they'll talk, what the what topics are can be covered and not uh, their role on campus, uh, not just for uh, international days or inter international weeks where they have their booths and uh, have their uh, share their culture and through fashion and all these all the, all the various topics that we usually cover, food obviously. But uh, we've seen in recent years, particularly when it's come to Confucius Institutes, when it's come to t discussions on campus that are uh, considered verboten uh, in terms of Chinese uh, government uh, topics, uh, having inviting the Dalai Lama to campus always brings protests from Chinese student associations, uh, talks about Tiananmen Square, talks about Uyghur Muslims uh, and, and the uh, human rights abuses committed against them. Those are never discussed uh, or never tolerated uh, by uh, certain groups of Chinese students. Now, what has happened uh, at Purdue University is we have two takes that I'll, I'll be dropping the links to, to stories in the comments section on the Facebook page for this event. Uh, that one from the Global Times, which is a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party based in China, funded by the Chinese government, 
uh, that talks about this Purdue University student, uh, PhD student who was openly critical in some remarks he made about uh, about China uh, and uh, related to topics on um, on Hong Kong, uh, on Taiwan, uh, basically uh, aligning with democratic forces in Hong Kong, or that were maybe su seen as secessionist uh, by the Chinese government. Also, the, the student, PhD student, uh, considered Taiwan uh, as a so a so its own sovereign state, not just another territory or province of, of mainland China. Uh, which the Chinese government, government obviously uh, certainly believes, and that that that's a that's a topic that goes back to to, to the foundation of the of um, of the of the People's Republic of China in 1949 when the uh, Communist Party took over. Uh, China uh, never never uh, China has never admitted that Taiwan is a separate state. Uh, it is. Uh, it always considered has considered it since 1949 a province of China that ha is maybe like a Hong Kong that had been independent and is just uh, has its own way of government and and running its economy. Uh, they want it back. Uh, they're doing everything they can to uh, get it back through military expansion into the uh, into the South China Sea and other means uh, to. Um, make it less likely that it will ever be a fully independent state. Uh, but this this PhD student, let's getting, getting back to the point here, uh, he was uh, uh, students, ch Chinese students uh, at the campus uh, that did not agree and may were, were t Chinese students that would tow the party line in terms of what the Chinese government said uh, related to Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, and other topics that aren't even mentioned in this uh, Global Times article uh, related to Uyghur Muslims, related to Tiananmen Square, not even mentioned in the Global Times article, were prominent in what the student was, uh, was espousing uh, that were anti-Chinese government. Uh, his, uh, these Chinese students that are in the, Chinese, in the article, uh, Global Times article, they're, they're given pseudonyms because um, they are trying to protect their own identity because they know they're going to be targeted by, by Purdue for persecution or prosecution for their misdeeds. That uh, at our school, so this is the, the leader, one of the leaders of this movement, uh, a senior student majoring in communications, at our school, Chinese students are outraged to hear Kong slander. Some of our compatriots were seeking legitimate ways to expose his hypocrisy, but not to attack him out of line. So this is this uh, senior student who was saying that. Uh, she says, the Purdue president came to believe only listening to what the media said that Kong had been persecuted. And even he slapped all Chinese students with a collusion with foreign governments in repression charge. And we'll talk about that when we get to the other article from Inside Higher Ed. So we had a representative of the Chinese embassy uh, in, uh, in, in DC uh, had said that Purdue uh, University's alleged uh, allegations against its Chinese students are unfounded, and such allegations pose a threat to the reputation and safety of the Chinese student community. Uh, the student who was being uh, persecuted uh, by uh, the, these pro-China students uh, has uh, been sharing his email around in various interviews, waiting for, and this is the articles, uh, waiting for more anti-Chinese activists to extend an olive branch to him. Uh, that uh, 
the and here's here's a, here's a great uh, some there's some amazing lines in this article. You have to read it just to get a perspective and and really a sense of what we're dealing with here, uh, and in terms of the the position of the Chinese government. Experts and observers reached by the Global Times said that Kong's words and actions must have been influenced by the environment where he studied and lived in the United States. Currently, the U.S. is seeking every possible way to contain China. Well, in a lot of, a lot of ways, that, that's true because it's overextended itself in a number of areas, with more Chinese students becoming targets of influence to oppose China. These people are, and here's a great one from uh, the prof uh, professor at the Institute of International Relations in China Foreign Affairs University, uh, Li Heidong. Uh, he, uh, uh, Professor Heidong, uh, or Li said, these people are the defective products of American education system. Their being able to have an audience shows a sick social environment in the United States. And back to the student representative who's been leading the charge against this uh, PhD candidate. People with ulterior motives are everywhere in the United States, noting that on campus, many anti-Chinese clubs have set up, set up China-related topics with ulterior motives to brainwash students and recruit like-minded people. Uh, dear, this is free expression on campus. Uh, your, your government does not allow that. Uh, anything that's, uh, as you know, uh, you know, and you didn't mention it in your quotes, because uh, it's sacrilege to say that uh, Tiananmen Square actually happened. It's sacrilege to say that the Uyghur Muslims are being persecuted in Shenzhen province or re-educated in concentration camps, uh, that there's been genocide happening there. Uh, there are companies now in the United States that will not buy products that are coming from uh, that province of China because of the abuses that have been documented. And the Chinese government is never going to admit that. They're never going to admit to Tiananmen Square. It's been stricken from the history books. Uh, never happened. Uh, it's, uh, you keep on believing the same lines over and over again. As students, if you've never been taught otherwise, you're going to have a very some students are going to have a very different reaction when they hear about this for the first time when they come to the West and are educated about that, what, it, what actually happened in their countries. So that's the, that's the dilemma that you face, uh, and it's one that uh, see, you seem to see, seem to see uh, on campus. There, there are divisions uh, in those Chinese students that are willing to speak up because they've seen both sides and they've seen what's happened uh, and, and actually can talk about the issues that are being uh, are, are being swept under the carpet by the, the Chinese government. Uh, and we, in the United States, we have a tradition and, uh, on our campuses of academic freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of thought. And these Chinese students that are coming here and uh, are towing the party line and are being very defensive uh, of, of, of the Chinese government. They have a right to defend their home country uh, and the, what their country stands for, but they do not have a right, as the case is pointing out here with this Purdue student, to openly attack him, uh, threaten him, to, with, uh, uh, to report him to the Chinese embassy, uh, and that, those types of things. And those are, uh, uh, that's obviously happened. They know about the student now. Uh, and what that means for his family back in China. We've heard other stories about how that has, how other students that have spoken out, their families back in China have been persecuted as a result or denied opportunities or thrown in jail, whatever the case may be. That is fact. It happens. Uh, and in this case, who knows what's going to happen with this student's family back in China. 
Uh, there are uh, political dissidents, journalists, uh, professors uh, who, who've gone against the grain in China have ended up in custody and behind bars for on trumped-up charges um, uh, or charges of uh, promoting ideas that are against the government. And that is something that in the United States, that culture does not exist. That culture is not tol tolerated here, uh, thankfully. And this is something that you see in the Inside Higher article that talks about the same situation, uh, that this, uh, the uh, Pre President Mitch Daniels at Purdue uh, had uh, his, um, yeah, he's and talking about what happened to his family back in China. He specifically mentions uh, Tiananmen Square, the students, um, uh, the hero students there that were killed. Uh, that was specifically mentioned. He mentioned the Uyghurs. That that's never mentioned in the Chinese mouthpiece uh, article we talked about from Global Times. That his parents, uh, uh, his parents in China, received a visit from officers of the Ministry of State Security, this China's spy agency, warning him about his U.S.-based activism. So his parents have been threatened because of what he said here in the United States, and that. Uh, they are threatened, uh, the student groups are threatened to report him to the Chinese embassy and state security agency. That's already happened, obviously. So uh, this is uh, unacceptable and unwelcome on Purdue's campus, and that's quotes from uh, uh, President Daniels, and uh, that uh, they, if they find out, if the university uh, finds out who these students are who are threatening him, who threaten to report him to a foreign entity for exercising freedom of speech or belief, will be subject to significant sanction. So uh, he talks about, uh, da Daniels talks about Purdue's history with uh, international students and had 200 new Chinese students enroll there last fall, which it frankly isn't a lot compared to some of their other Big Ten rivals, uh, particularly at an engineering school where Chinese uh, uh, students generally are, are very STEM focused um, and will enroll in engineering classes, but uh, that's different at uh, Purdue. Uh, that's uh, really interesting to see the counterpoint with this article and the Global Times article. That uh, So if you, if you want to get more into it, definitely subscribe to the newsletter. Go to our archive page of all the newsletters, uh, editions. Uh, it's at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And again, if you're listening on repeat uh, on Facebook or Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, uh, you can get the get the edition if you're not already subscribed to the newsletter you can get all the links to the articles that we're discussing here uh, in that newsletter archive if you're not watching live on Facebook so that's what's happening uh, with regard to uh, that that deep conflict that's uh, occurring between Chinese student groups on campus in the United States final question what are US colleges planning for the spring due to Omicron I want to say it's like we're going back in time it's March 2020 again and cases are, 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 are exploding uh, around, the around the college campuses around the country. And you see uh, student, uh, groups like uh, at Cornell University at the end of the fall term there, 900 cases, big headlines all over the country. They went, shut down, went online. You've got a lot of institutions now that are looking to go online uh, uh, for the beginning of the spring term. 
we know that uh, more than, and there are more than a dozen residential colleges that have announced in recent days, they'll, this from a Chronicle of Higher Ed article, uh, that they will teach online uh, when students return in January. Don't, some are saying it's a week, some are saying it's two weeks, some are saying it's indefinite. Some uh, on college campuses uh, have sent students home early. Uh, that some that, ha many of these that, interestingly, many of these that are going online again in the spring are ones that already had vaccine mandates in place. So the cases, one would assume, based on what we know about Omicron, that it's a less, uh, it's more contagious, but it's less damaging uh, and less severe uh, uh, condition than Delta or the earlier variants. So what we're seeing here is that uh, that it, it, it's a little bit odd that the, with college students being the um, Kind of the most resilient other than kids to uh, to the to COVID. Uh, there are obviously exceptions, and for those students that are in that exception pool, they need to be accommodated clearly and uh, allowed different access to the same same materials if they're not able to uh, go in person or uh, they should have that online ability. You've seen college campuses also who had vaccine mandates in the fall now are looking at putting booster mandates in place. A number of colleges, probably a dozen campuses, have already done that for the spring. So we're seeing that that's happening quite a bit as well. So we'll see what happens uh, in, the, in the coming weeks and months, but it does look like we're going back in time. Uh, even though we thought we were maybe coming out of the pandemic uh, last fall, uh, the reality is it's going to be with us for a while. It might be a, a regular part of, of college life, of everyday life in the United States, frankly, and around the world uh, with these ver different variants that uh, we're, we're experiencing. But one thing is for certain, immigration regulations need to catch up with this situation. We've had this kind of two-year uh, kind of exception that has allowed current students to be on campus uh, are in the United States enrolled in F1, stat, F1 student status, but being able to take more than one college class online or all of them online. Uh, so that is something that we're going to see more of, I think, and the need for uh, more flexible immigration regulations that were written in the 80s uh, that don't accommodate for, or early 90s that don't really accommodate for the kinds of uh, situations we find ourselves in. So hopefully we'll get around to that. But that's all we have for this week's, uh, our last edition of 2021 for the Midweek Roundup. And we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday, uh, January 4th, uh, for our first edition of 2022. And until next time, Happy New Year.